Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's Nurse Leadership and Innovation Training Program, Clinical Scene Investigator Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. This is Connie Barden, and I'm excited today to get to talk to a new friend and colleague, Bill Schuler. Bill is a patient safety specialist at Providence Health up in the Oregon region. And Bill, I'm just thrilled that you had the time to uh, carve out and chat with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. I have so much to learn about you and your journey and the work that you're doing primarily around violence in healthcare. And I know this is a topic that is extremely important to those listening. Before we dive into that, though, I also know you've had a very interesting meandering through nursing for the last 26 years. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your the cliff notes of your journey as uh, being a nurse? I began my medical career essentially right after high school, right out of high school. I went to EMT school and I was able to function as an EMT for, you know, all through nursing school as well. And that, you know, I continued that after I graduated, um, I was able to go directly into the emergency department, um, thankfully. And that's where I started my emergency career. So, you know, that includes level one trauma center. That also includes some travel nursing uh, to various states. Um, and then I ended up here in Oregon in about 2005. And eventually, you know, about four, four almost five years in at a level one trauma center, I, I was burnt out. I'll freely admit that. Um, so I looked for something different and I went into a weight loss clinic as a nurse. Um, totally separate, totally different Um focus, but I still kept my foot in the door for the emergency department and worked some agency. And then uh, I got married in that interim and uh, then my wife became pregnant and I figured I need a little bit more steady income. So I went back into the emergency department. Um, And so this is about 2012 where there were some violent incidences in our emergency department. And I was frustrated because there was no education. Um, there didn't seem to be a plan. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to educate myself. And so I was ready to sign up for a a program that would, you know, I would be an instructor, uh, a violence prevention instructor. And then within two weeks, my manager came to me and said, you know what? We're starting this new violence prevention program. I've pegged you to be an instructor. So you're going to be an instructor. We'll send you for the three days of intensive training. And so that's how it started uh, for me about almost 13 years ago. So I continued in in that realm as an emergency nurse, as well as a violence prevention educator. Eventually, I became kind of the clinical nurse, the lead uh, for that violence prevention program. And, I, you know, I started feeling burnt out again. So... This is where I, I transitioned into the role I'm in now um, that I've been in for nearly seven years, and that is as a patient safety specialist. And some of the reasoning behind that is when I was making the decision to change, 
it's not really an epiphany, but I was thinking there's plenty of us caring for patients, but who's caring for the caregiver. And so that is kind of what spurred me and continues to motivate me to do what I do in the patient safety aspect, as well as the violence prevention aspect. So, um, my employer Providence has graciously allowed me to contribute in the violence prevention efforts um, that we're doing both at the hospital, the regional and the system level. Um, So that's where I'm at today. Well, that's an interesting journey indeed. And I think it's one that people can really identify with. I appreciate your candor about this, this journey where we, we get all in and we get enthused and then we get burned out and we need to go do something else. Sound like you were very mindful about tending to that and trying different things, et cetera. And I totally get it. You start having kids, then you got to have a good income and <laughs> do what works, right? That's so correct. let me, I'm, I'm just curious, where are you from originally? You said you wound up in Oregon. Where, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Wisconsin. So oh. Southeast Wisconsin, not, not far from Milwaukee. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I'm sure the Oregonians are happy that you landed out that way. It's interesting that your title, patient safety specialist, when I hear that title, I think, of course, patient safety stuff and all the things that we do there and how great that you get to incorporate both interests, both patient safety and your work with violence. So let's talk a little bit about this violence thing, because you noted it. You said it started with some violent incidents in the in the ER or ED, but we've really seen it increase. It feels like it's increased at least a lot in the last several years. So talk to us about that. What have you seen? Are there trends? Are nurses more at risk than others? Just sort of what are your general thoughts about what's going on with violence in healthcare workplaces? Yeah, violence in the workplace, especially in healthcare, is on an upward trend. And that is We can see that in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, their data that they put out. Uh, One of their last publications, you know, stems from looking at it from the year 2018, and they have a a trend graph, and it's always, it's just going up and up and up. Um, If you looked at the official numbers, you can confidently say that healthcare workers suffer five times the workplace violence than any other business or private sector business. When you look at injuries, uh, specifically to workplace violence, healthcare suffers 73% of all non-fatal workplace injuries from workplace violence, 73%. Say that one more time. So did I get this right? Healthcare workers have five times more violence. Yep, violent incidences. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh, than than the usual worker in the workforce. And say that about injuries again, that's astounding to me. Yeah, 73% of non-fatal work injuries from workplace violence occur in healthcare. Wow, that's incredible. What do you think is behind this? I've been a nurse for a long time and you have too. I don't remember it many, many years ago. Um, You said that the data show there's an upward trend. What's your gut feeling about what's going on here? Well, it could be a, a few things. It could be that we are getting better at reporting. Uh, being uh, getting better at collecting the data. It could be that it's actually increasing and it's it's a good conversation to have to discover why. Why is it happening? I think it's just inherent we take care of people. Uh, so I think just the fact that we take care of people um, is, is the risk um, because there's 
we know that there's many reasons for why people can be violent. It could, it could be a, a medical issue. It could be a, an acute psychiatric issue. Uh, it could be frustration. It could be, um, you know, long wait times, uh, lack of adequate throughput, you know, all these things kind of influence, or, or at least the, the data shows can influence violence in the workplace. Yeah, I totally get that. And, you know, those of us, when we have patient experiences ourselves, we get how frustrating the system is. The difference is we as healthcare people know the language and we probably right. know how to navigate it more. And in general, we don't turn to violent. We just know who to talk to and how to work the system. I can't even imagine trying to work a system when you're sick and vulnerable and you it feels like people are speaking a foreign language, et cetera. Um, ASIN has done some studies and talked to nurses about violence. And what we find when we say, who are the, where are the sources most often of violence? And the number one, or the one and two uh, perpetrators, so to speak, are patients and then patients and families. Is that consistent with the data that you're familiar with? Yeah. Yeah. From the, what I've been able to look at and see, it's pretty consistent that the, number one perpetrators are either visitors, family members, as well as patients. I know you work a lot with both patient safety and around these issues. And I'm certain that leaders come to you all the time asking, where do we start? What do we do? What are some solutions or um, ideas that we can put into place? What can you tell us about that? How do you talk to leaders about these kinds of things? I think the start is to acknowledge that you probably have a significant amount of violence in your facility. Where to start would be, you know, if you don't, let's say you don't have a, an existing violence prevention program, you might want to start looking at some of your data. Now, you likely have a reporting system where caregivers can report. Um, you might have a system specific to workplace violence. So you might, you know, put it in general safety reporting systems. Um, if you have a security uh, group, you can look at their security reports. If anything, there's one study that showed that maybe the security reports are the more accurate uh, data to collect versus reports from caregivers. Because we know there's, you know, it's pretty well supported in the literature that we underreport our workplace violence incidents. So knowing that, um, you know, we ask security to respond to certain events. Um, you know, we might call on them early. We might call on them when something's actually happening, but that data might be more accurate than your uh, caregiver reports. Other things to look at include your workers' comp. Um, how many are getting injured um, and filing a workers' comp claim? Um, and, and how much money are you spending out? How many days away are your caregivers um, spending because of workplace violence and injuries associated with that. So those are some of the kind of basic things one can look at and look at that data and present it up, up to your executives and hopefully get an executive sponsor. Because really, if you don't have a sponsorship, the program, you know, we know in hospitals, things are fast moving and changing and it could be easy, very easy to push um, push violence prevention efforts, kind of put it on the back table and, you know, table it and not give it the, uh, the energy and the focus that it's due. Um, Bill, let me ask you, I totally agree. I think that comment about having an executive sponsor is key. 
Do you know of places that actually report these kinds of things up to the board level? Yes, uh, we do at Providence. We uh, have a have a process that it goes through various committees and ultimately does get reported up to our board. If anything, the most recent uh, guidelines that came out from or standards that came out from the Joint Commission in 2022 was that you need to report your workplace violence up to the board. So mm. those those facilities that are accredited by the Joint Commission, you know, probably had to do a lot of work in the past year, year and a half to get ready to be compliant with those new standards with the Joint Commission. Oh, that's really great information to have. And, and yay for the Joint Commission for seeing that. You know, there, there's a phrase that goes something like the best disinfectant is sunlight. And uh, I think that's what you're saying. Don't shove this under the rug somewhere. We need to yeah. talk about it, acknowledge it, gather data. Um, those are really some great ideas about the kinds of data to gather. Before I ask you about benchmarks, I want to ask you, do you have any um, unofficial notions? You commented that we as healthcare workers often underreport. Do you have any ideas why that's so? Yeah, there's there's quite a few factors. Um, it depends on your maybe your ideology or your frame. You some we know some caregivers have the frame of well they didn't intend to do it or you know it's part of their illness I'm not going to bother to report it. it to the to the realm of I report it and I don't hear any follow up I don't get nobody circles back with me to the point of nothing changes right we've we've submitted all these reports they seem to go into a black hole. And nothing seems to change. So I think those are the biggest uh, contributors to why we underreport. You know, and and I can understand. Um, we might report the ones where, like, well, that person should have known better, right? They have their faculties, um, and then we might not report the ones that's like they're they're acutely ill, they're in a psychosis, they didn't know what they were doing was wrong. So I'm not going to report it. So. I think those are some of the probably the biggest factors of why there's underreporting. Yeah, I got a bunch of great nuggets out of what you just said. The last thing that you talked about, I hear this from nurses all the time. They're disoriented. They're you know they're acutely ill. They're sedated. They're getting all kinds of medication. It's not their fault. Yet, what I think I'm hearing you say is it's important to report this, not because it's a bad patient. The patient didn't do anything wrong. We all agree with that. If they're confused and disoriented, that's part of being horribly ill. But if we want good data about what it is that healthcare folks are dealing with, we need to report those things and get it out of, get out of the mindset of being punitive toward the patient right. rather right. than building a new system. Like you said, it's it's about data. And yeah. if you want to make some changes, especially if you're going to ask for funds to make some changes or to institute a new you know, program or initiative, uh, you're going to have to come at it with data, yeah. including, including the money part of it. Yeah. How much it costs when people are out and injured and to your point about the uh, workers' comp claims and all of that kind of thing. The second nugget that I heard you say, and I think this is a real gem, for leaders that oftentimes, I've heard this a million times myself, people don't report things because they do and they don't get any feedback and it goes into the black hole. You spend your time filling out these forms very carefully because you want to do it right. And then you never, the, the loop never gets closed. And so nurses often think it's useless and quote unquote, nothing changes. So that's a real reminder to leaders to 
put that in place so there's some follow-up back to people who are reporting. Yeah, that's correct. And it and it could be as simple. I mean, you know, in my patient safety work, it's the same, it's the same thing. It's like I reported a patient safety issue. It might be minor. Or it might be like, huh, we're seeing a, a pattern or a trend here. I report this and I don't know what happens. I don't, yeah, I, I didn't hear any investigative, you know. So I, for for leaders, I would just suggest start making it part of your standard work um, to do follow-up with your caregivers. Uh it shows that you're it there might be, there might not be things that you can actually do, right? Um, but you could at least listen and you can at least, you know, follow up with your caregivers. And that goes a long way, I think, to establishing a culture of safety, right? Psychological safety, as well as trust. Because uh, if anything I know right now, there is an issue of trust between our bedside caregivers and our leaders. So Absolutely a, a simple thing like this could go a long way, I believe. Absolutely true. I 100% agree. Before we move off of uh, thinking about data, are there any national benchmarks that would be great for folks to know about? Not that I'm aware of. I don't wow. think we've come to the point of benchmarking workplace violence, you know, data. There isn't even a, an accepted like violence incident rate, right? Like I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics looks at, you know, number of incidences per 10,000 full-time employees. So we haven't even standardized that yet. One place I'm aware of, they do it, you know, incidences versus uh, compared to 100 full-time equivalents or FTEs. So I, I think slowly as we start communicating, we should not be competing on violence prevention or safety. Uh, we should actually be banding together. Um, and I have a good example of that um, uh, coming up, but um we should not be competing on, on violence prevention or safety. Oh boy. I never even thought about that, but what a great point. You know, we don't want to say we're better than you because we have less violence over here and that kind of thing. I never even thought of it, but a really salient point. This is something that we come together around, share best practices and learn from each other. Correct. Yeah. I know that uh, in the Providence system, you're involved with workplace violence mitigation and prevention programs. Is there something you can share about that whole body of work? Yeah, surprisingly, um, I, I think if you're going to do it right, a violence prevention program has has multiple factors and probably takes more energy and time than you think uh, about, at least, or consider, you know, to the point of what does your committee look like? Um, who structures the committee? Who's your executive sponsor? what's the multi multidisciplinary team that is going to be involved? So, I mean, for us, we look at it from a hospital level and then the Oregon region level, but then we also started initiatives on the Providence system level, which, you know, we have hospitals in seven different states. Each state has their own law, you know, Washington, Oregon, California have very specific laws on violence prevention programs, especially in healthcare. So, you know, trying to manage and, and navigate all that um, can can take some time and dedication. It's easy for it to grow legs <laughs> and expand. Um, so, uh, you know, realize that that will happen, that will likely happen as you look at like, okay, what does our data show? What is What are the caregivers telling us they want? 
And then, you know, what do we need to do about it? Tell me a little bit what you mean about growing legs. Do you mean like in world hunger, it just gets like <laughs> craziness? The example I can think of is like when we started out, the basic was like, okay, let's look at our policy, right? Um, let's let's try to address workplace violence before it happens, you know, try to have a strategy when it happens, although that's very difficult, um, but then also have strategies after it happens. So, you know, we know it's going to happen. So here's here's what we do as a, as a system, as an entity, as a hospital. Here's what we do. You know, here's what security does. Here's what safety does. Here's what, you know, core leaders or managers or executives do. Here's what maybe HR does. So you start from there and then, you know, recognize and it can be from some safety incidents, you know, where it kind of grew legs for us was, all right, we don't have a really good sign that our caregivers or units can post in public places. Um, so we had to form a committee on that. And that took a long time to agree on language. Because um, at Providence, we, we like to have more supportive language, um, not necessarily punitive language in our signage. Yes. We're asking for their partnership in creating a safe work environment. Um, and that, you know, that's patients as well as visitors, vendors, anybody who visits. To the point where we, we recognize that we don't communicate a person's risk for violence very well. So we had to, you know, kind of create from the ground up with very minimal literature to support us um, a, a program or a process using our electronic medical record. Uh, to help help us with that, a process of, okay, if a patient has this certain type of behavior, uh, do we do we communicate that? How do we communicate that? And often the common term is flag. How do we flag them to let other people know that uh, this patient might become violent, or these are their triggers, or this is what helps to deescalate them, or here's how you can sa more safely interact with the patient. It might be with two people, or it might be you know, don't go in the room alone or um, don't come within, you know, a certain feet of the patient. It, it could be that helpful thing because we also have to realize that many of our patients, they're not only seen in the hospital, but they're seen outpatient in our clinics. So th those communications can be helpful as, as well. You know, to other things that, you know, we talk about growing legs to, okay, uh, let's consider metal detectors now. So, mm. You know, for one of our one of our emergency departments, we installed a metal detector. But a common issue with that, especially right now, is staffing that. Uh huh. Um, and we've heard that in the you know the Portland metro area in the northwest region that that's a common problem for our hospitals that have metal detectors. To the point of you know, let's consider canines or dogs. Hmm. You know, to help. You know, deescalate. You know, there's not huge good literature on that about the effectiveness of canines, but anecdotally, you know, people say that it does help to decrease workplace violence. So, uh, you know, each one of these things is like a different, you know, program that needs like a subcommittee um, and, and takes time to develop, you know, metrics to, I mean, as simple as on your intranet site, do you want a specific workplace violence site where caregivers can go, leaders can go, executives can go, you can look at data you know, live data, you know, that's maybe a month old um, to here's some resources for you. Hey, here's a link to the reporting uh, process that we have. 
or you know, here's here's an aftercare checklist is one thing we've developed for our core leaders or our managers to be like, okay, consider this and this and this and this, you know, follow up with them, you know, how often do you follow up with them, you know, until they return to work. So as you can see, like there's there's many legs that it's not just a straightforward, you know, violence prevention program that includes education. It's much more than that. Oh my gosh. It sounds like it could be an entire department, actually, if you did it perfectly well. I mean, you're I, I get it about growing legs. It could really turn into something huge. And yet it's very important. Melds well with the patient safety thing. I could see that being a nice marriage, so to speak, of yep. work that people do, much like you do in the Providence system. Um, I don't I don't know if you have any examples in your head of um certain organizations that are particularly effective in this work. Does any place come to mind or any examples you want to give us about who's a leader in this type of thing that folks could uh, study a little bit? Yeah, I'd like to say, you know, Providence and Oregon (laughs) set set a standard, but, um, you know, and I, I hear snippets from around the country, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I've gathered some of this stuff over the years, and and brought it forward like one one time I heard that um, an executive you know anytime there's a workplace violence where a caregiver is injured our chief executive our CEO or the chief nursing executive calls the caregiver you know to have a direct conversation you know apologize ask wow. if there's anything that they need so that I think goes a long way to. Uh, helping to mitigate at least some of the effects, the negative effects of of a workplace violence incident and an injury uh, to the point of somebody suggested, well, at least here in Oregon, our workers' comp laws say that when you have an injury that takes you away from work, the first three, you know, first three days mm-hmm. have to be covered by something before workers' compensation kicks in. Now, the law doesn't say what, but commonly the employer will have the employee use their own pay time off or their PTO right. bank. Right. So one thing that was offered and, and, and you know, I, I kind of took it and communicated it out to my, you know, Oregon ENA colleagues was one organization offered paid administrative leave for those first three days. Mm-hmm before workers comp would kick in and that goes you know a pretty long way at supporting the caregiver um because it's almost seems punitive it's like i got injured at work this is a workplace injury and yet i'm having to use my own pto you know granted it is for illnesses and you know uh, vacations and things like that but you know i can understand an illness like a, you know you got the flu you got the cold okay this is part of my benefit but when I go to work, I get injured, no fault of my own at work. Right. Why, why am I having to use my own PTO bank? So I brought that up and, and one of the local um, um, health systems adopted that. And, you know, there's some worries, you know, initially of it's going to be abused and everybody's going to know about it and they're going to, you know, ab- abuse that, that privilege. But the follow-up I get on that is like, no. That the the leaders, the managers actually like it because it's something tangible they can offer to their caregivers after workplace violence injury. And we we adopted that at, at Providence hmm. as well. You know, it's something that we we do offer. 
I would agree with you. I think Providence should be in the list of organizations <laughs> that are that are great examples for folks who are doing this. Um, gosh, I want to hear so many things, and our time is limited. Let me ask you one thing, though, that you mentioned. Talked about working uh, in, I think, Oregon ENA and that type of thing. I know you've been involved both locally, state level, and even federally with some advocacy work. Can Correct. you give us a little? Uh, uh, smattering of what you're doing uh, on those levels too, in terms of advocacy around violence. Sure. Yeah. I became, you know, involved in government affairs uh, with the Oregon Emergency Nurses Association. So I'll refer to them as Oregon ENA. I became involved with them at in 2015 when it was being communicated that, look, we want to propose legislation that would make it a felony to assault a healthcare worker or a hospital worker. So it was a multi-pronged you know, uh, pronged approach. Oregon ENA was involved. Um, we had our nursing association, our professional nursing association, along with the union. We had um, quite of a coalition, and that was our first attempt. And we've, we've attempted, and it wasn't successful, mm-hmm. but we've attempted that same initiative probably four times since 2015, and from what I know, it looks like we're probably going to pursue that um, felony legislation again in 2023, you know, but along with some other things that we're going to propose, you know, a huge amount of my work is at the state level and, you know, building relationships and coalitions and, you know, talking to people because usually your coalition members have a common goal or have a common problem. So we work, we've been working really closely with our American College of Emergency Physicians colleagues from the Oregon chapter, as well as our hospital association in conjunction with our professional nursing organization in Oregon. So um, that's a huge amount of my work is at the state level, but I'm also involved in the ENA's Advocacy Advisory Council, which is, you know, public policy advocacy focused on a nationwide level, because there have been over the past few years, there have been a couple bills put forward for violence prevention and the healthcare and social service workers. You know, those haven't, those typically pass the house, but they, they don't pass the Senate. And um, so that was true for our last legislative session, the 117th Congress, I believe. Mm-hmm. And now since it's a new Congress, we have to start all over. So those bills need to be reintroduced. You know, at last there was, there was, you know, House Bill 1195, uh, which was introduced into the Senate um, in, in May of last year, but it didn't move in the Senate. So somebody would have to reintroduce those bills. Um, there was also one that was promoted by the American Hospital Association, which would, you know, treat violence in healthcare kind of like, um, with protections similar of what we do to, you know, airline employees, our pilots, our flight attendants, things of that nature would make it a federal issue. Uh, but that one really didn't move forward either. Oh, that's tough work. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. You have to be persistent and willing to start all over again, which is why, to your point about relationships and coalitions, that's how advocacy work gets done. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I'm happy you are in the middle of this charge. I know it's tough. And that that leads me to my next question for you, because you're doing not only work around violence. Your, your main job is also patient safety. I used to work in patient safety. I know it is heavy work, especially when injuries and untoward events, serious safety events happen with patients. 
What do you do to take care of yourself? How do you get balance in your own life when you're dealing with very big, heady things like this on a day-to-day basis? I have a few strategies to help manage my stress. Because you're right, a patient safety um, role, I think, is more stressful than I thought it would be uh, going in. Um, It is, you know, I'm a knowledge worker, um, so it's different than working the floor. There was an adjustment period for me. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, seven years in, I think I've kind of normalized my routine. But I think what ha- helps me manage stress is to talk. Really, um, my colleagues, my three co- patient safety colleagues that I work closely with, we communicate a lot. And it could be to the point of just having a peer that, you mm-hmm. know, is, just going to listen because they probably have the same stressors I do, you know, both at work and, and sometimes outside of work too. But talking, I think, is very therapeutic. Um, you know, journaling, if, if, if you're open to that. I, I've found for me that if I can lay my thoughts on paper, mm. I can give it away kind of, it's on paper. I don't, it doesn't take up space in my mind anymore. I found that to be helpful, but of course, you know, dedicating the time to do that sometimes is is a little, is a little hard uh, with work schedule and family schedule and things of that nature. But I also found that boundaries are very Mm -hmm. helpful. You know, I I start at this time, I end at this time. um, I don't check. I shut off my computer. I log off. I shut it down. Uh, so I don't have the temptation to open it back up and look. Um, I've turned off. Sometimes I turn off. Well, I have turned off notifications on my phone because mm-hmm. we we communicate a lot via Teams. You know, Microsoft Teams nowadays. That's at least what we use. But you know, I can then install the app on my phone, but I don't necessarily want people pinging me after hours yes. um, because that's my time. <laughs> you know, right. if if you really, if you want access to me after our agreed upon work schedule, you, you probably need to look at my job description and compensation again. <laughs> but um, right. so I think boundaries are are very helpful because it is it is easy to get caught up and make it a, you know, a 20, 20 hour a day job. Sure, you might not be in front of your computer working, but you're attending to emails and discussions off hours. So I've, I found that, you know, boundaries are very helpful. And also I've, I found exercise to be beneficial. Look, I try to get to the gym three to four days a week. Some weeks I don't feel like it. Mm. Some days I don't feel like it's like, I just work 10 hours in front of a computer. My brain is drained and I really don't want to go work out. But I do, and it's, you know, I force myself to do it. But I'm after the workout, I always feel better. Yeah. So that's the that's the crux of it. It's like you might not feel like doing it, but almost guaranteed that I feel better after I, I you know, go to the gym. You know, and movement is very, you know, important. You know, I I'm I'm a knowledge worker. I sit in front of a computer, and that's probably not good you know, for my overall physical health either. So I need to put in purposeful movement throughout the week. That sounds like a very well-rounded 
plan with a lots of different things that happen to work for you and different things, different things work for different people. Thanks for sharing that. Um, this is a lot, as we said, it's heavy. Um, and yet you stay in it. You've talked about your journey and, and times where you felt burned out and so forth, but you're in it and clearly very passionate about it, both within your work and on the national level, state and national level in terms of advocacy. When you look at all of that, what gives you hope for the future? Do you think we're going to make progress so that nurses and other healthcare workers can begin to feel safer? I'm hopeful for the future because I think we're finally starting to shine the spotlight on the issue in realizing that it's it's not something that you know one person over here should handle it's 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 a hospital wide problem if you look usually uh violence exists on almost all units in in hospitals some more than others as we know you know behavioral health in emergency department and you know in some places it's it's the med- medical surgical unit as well um yeah. but i'm very hopeful because you know, like you said, sunlight is sometimes the best form of disinfectant. So we're starting to shine a light, you know, on a national level, our, our accreditation agencies are taking note, our regulatory agencies are taking note. And I think we might be to the point, from what I know, we might be to the point of, if we're not going to do the right thing by our patients and our caregivers, we will be regulated to do so. And I think we're starting to get there with the the bills that have been uh, introduced, you know, nationally, you know, the, the recent changes with the joint commission, you know, those, you know, have forced many hospitals to like, okay, now we need to get with the program um, because the joint commission says we have to. Yeah. So I think um, it's, the future is bright. And from what I know, I mean, there's even new positions specific to violence prevention that are popping up. And we created one for Providence in the Oregon region. So it's a program manager for the violence prevention program mm-hmm. uh, because there's so many facets. Like I said, it grows legs. Um, somebody needs to keep eyes on it. Um, somebody should really be doing follow-up on a lot of the workplace violence reports, helping our, our leaders um, navigate the, the the process, the problems. Um because sometimes I think we're we're at a loss of what to do, and and sometimes there might not be an actual mitigation intervention that you can do. Right. Sometimes the best thing you might be able to do is listen, and take take some advice, and you know consider. I think the best resource is our best resource for our violence prevention programs is our caregivers at the bedside. You know, it's easy to do a top down program you know, where, you know, the committee thinks about it and then it trickles down to the hospital committees and that might trickle down to your bedside caregivers. They might not have any idea of what you're doing, but to involve them into your, your committees, um, I think is very powerful. We talk about this in patient safety too. It's like those people that are giving this, the care at the bedside know what the fix is. If there is a fix, they know because they're the ones doing the workarounds or shortcuts to make work easier and more efficient. Yes. And so, you know, some of our safety efforts get in the way of that. So, um, but I think our caregivers um, are the, one of our best sources to help us with violence prevention. You know, in addition, I would say, you know, start reaching outside of your hospital. Uh-huh. 
right? Talking to other colleagues, learning from other people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like in, in we just instituted last year a, a, a collaborative, a violence prevention collaborative in the Northwest Portland area. And we have quite a few hospitals and health systems involved in that. So we're sharing, you know, we've, we had our first conference in November, but we're sharing common common practices and and learning from each other. I've heard in our talking tips for bedside nurses, which is we've got to report. We've got to help and, and get the data. I've heard tips for leaders. Um, I've heard tips for organizations. I've heard tips around advocacy. This has been just hugely impactful. And I think the best thing that I'm walking away uh, with is hope. Because when mm-hmm. I listen to you and I think about all the things that are possible, all the things that you all are beginning up there in Providence, as well as on the state and national level, I do have hope that because we're talking about this, we're shedding light on it, so to speak, uh, we can we can become hopeful. And I love that you started by saying really doing violence prevention work is about caring for the caregiver. And then you ended by saying, and the best resources for helping to do this work is the direct caregiver. So Bill Shuler from Providence, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, I could keep talking to you for another two hours, but uh, you and I would both get in trouble if we did that. So (laughs) thank you so much for spending time with me today. And thank you for having me, Connie. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN CSI Academy with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.